the moment has arrived. I am Tom Dickinson, and you are listening to The Moment, a podcast about, and I cannot stress this enough, Doctor Who. Each week on The Moment, well, actually, wait, let's not say each week. More on that later. Anyway, on each episode of The Moment, I am joined by a guest to talk about a particular moment from an episode of Doctor Who that they find fascinating or impactful or otherwise worthy of note. This week, that guest is Kathleen Showalter, and this week, that moment is from the very first episode of Modern Doctor Who. It's 2005, and after a long absence from television, Doctor Who returns with an episode entitled Rose. Christopher Eccleston appears in the series title role as Doctor Who himself, and Billy Piper joins him in the episode's title role as his new companion, Rose. But as Kathleen's moment begins, our two heroes haven't even met one another. In fact, the Doctor hasn't even appeared on screen yet. We've been introduced to Rose Tyler, an average girl living an average life and working an average job in an average department store. After her shift wraps up, Rose ventures down into the basement storeroom looking for a co-worker. When she sees that the plastic mannequins in storage are moving around, at first she thinks it's some kind of prank. But when they start menacing her into a corner, she becomes less amused and more afraid. And that is when Kathleen's moment begins. In Rose, things have been happening. She's being chased by plastic men. The doctor grabs Rose's hand. The camera goes to their hands clasping. Her head turns. They make eye contact and he goes, run, run. And they go. That is a very small moment, and it's one word. Mm -hmm. But that was the moment that Doctor Who kind of clicked for me as a newcomer to the show. I'd seen one other episode. I'd seen Blink. Don't even blink. Blink and you're dead. Where someone was trying to get me into watching the show. And I had seen Classic Who as a child when my dad watched it. You're a classic example. But I didn't really remember any of it. But that moment was the moment where like my heart cracked open and grew three sizes. I had this sort of visceral adrenaline punch Mm. and this sense of possibility. And like, it's like the world cracks open when he says run. What is it about that moment that you think causes you to have that reaction? I mean, it's the moment that Rose and the doctor really collide. They come together and it's the first thing he says to her. It changes her engagement in the narrative and changes my engagement in the narrative. It goes from watching something unfold on a screen to becoming part of it in some ways. And I think some of that is the linguistic nature of anytime you say something like, run! When you use an imperative form like that, it's not like, I'm going to run now. You you, you give an order. Mm. It's interesting in this moment because it signals like a a shift, like a pick up the pace kind of moment because Rose is uh, backing away from these approaching plastic men, Autons. She's just backing away slowly into a corner and then all of a sudden it becomes a chase scene at the doctor's behest. Exactly. So what you have is a winding of the tension tighter and tighter as they're getting closer and she's backing into an enclosed space. And then you've wound it up as much as it possibly can and then you cut the string. The thing, and it explodes. I, I need a better word for the physics of this. Um, <laughs> but, you know, where you've, you've cranked the tension as high as it can go. When he grabs her hand and he says, run, it releases all of that tension. Hmm. She's no longer in a corner. He's there. She's moving. Everybody's moving. It just breaks things free. 
And it really is the moment that you open up the rest of the universe from four rows. Why do you think running has become such a such like a prominent motif in, in the show? He said, run. Both in terms of just run. He said it a lot. The command to run or talking about running as well as just running as a thing people do on screen a lot in Doctor Who. Seriously, there's an outrageous amount of running involved. Well, I think people do it on screen a lot in Doctor Who because it goes from talky to movement and it's a it's a way to have something visually happening that isn't necessarily just beating people up. The way that you get the camera to move, the way you insert action, I mean, one of the major ways is running. It's a movement that doesn't necessarily... What are you doing? Fighting back. Require no. killing anything. Guns never use them. The shoe but when someone says run, it implies danger way better than somebody just yelling, danger! We run. Is that it? You got any silver bullets? No, we, we run out of options. We run. Your Majesty as a doctor, I recommend a vigorous jog. Good for the health. You thought I was all powerful. I'm actually not. We gotta run. I think that... I guess it's the Seven Doctor who more than once says something like... Yes. I think it's time for plan B. Okay, plan B. Run! We run? Yes! Run! And so it's a way that ties into the basic idea of the Doctor, where he is in some ways an all-powerful being, but he's not a god. He's flawed. If he didn't have those flaws, he wouldn't be such an interesting character, I think, to a lot of us. He's sort of MacGyvering his way through a lot of these scenarios. I mean, sometimes he's got a manipulative big plan. Yes, I have a plan. Can you explain your plan without using the word sonic screwdriver? But when it stops working, there's always run. What do you think it communicates to viewers for this to be the introduction to our hero? This is actually his first appearance on screen. I think it's a great introduction to the Doctor. At the same time, as it also is a great callback to previous Doctors. Because there's this introduction of him as a figure who is saving her, you know, because she's been backing into this corner. She's, they're going to get her. But he doesn't save her by magically getting her out of danger. Mm. So this tells you something about who the doctor is. He's going to save you, but it's not necessarily saving you to 100% safety. He doesn't have magic powers. If he had magic powers, they'd just be someplace else. And they're not. They have to actually run. So you you start with a combination there of the humanity in some ways of the Doctor in, in the incarnation element of the Doctor where he grabs her hand and he says this and he pulls her along. But you also have an element, just because I think of Christopher Eccleston's expression and intensity at that moment, of a little bit of the strangeness and, of course, the fact that he has apparently appeared out of nowhere to save her. Hmm. The fact that he is more than a normal person. You know, he's at the very least a superhero. Doctor Mysterio. If you have no idea what's going on, because... Like that, Doctor Mysterio. I'll have that. He's, he's there at exactly the right moment, but he doesn't fly down and just scoop her up in his arms and... Who are you? Move away from danger. A friend. Like Superman. He grabs her hand and says, run. Like... Mm, so we're here to fight. Captain America doesn't generally grab someone's hand and go, like... And if you want to stand in our way... Let's run away from danger! We'll fight you two. Together. Yeah. I mean, he may be like, you go run, I'm, and then I'm going to turn my shield. You know, it introduces you that this is, this is a figure who is just not that kind of superhero, not that kind of alien being. He's, he's more just, like, physically present in the same world that Rose is. Yeah. Then they're in an elevator and... Oh, Zamo. Yep. <laughs> He tosses her the arm of one of the, the mannequins, which shows you a little bit of the silliness that you're going to expect. Mm -hmm. And then I think he's holding his bomb device thing. Hey, I didn't have this. So and he's waving at her. 
and I might well die in the process, but don't worry about me, no. And he goes out the door, and then he comes back in, and he says... I'm the doctor, by the way. What's your name? Rose. Nice to meet you, Rose. Run for your life. And off again. And her face is just this great, like, what the hell is happening here? It's fun how cheerful he is about it. Yes, exactly. But there's something about that cheerfulness that's also a little inhuman. Yeah. Inappropriate. And and that goes back to, like, one of the things that I really like about all of the doctors, I think, is that slight strangeness. They look like normal people. If you are an alien, how come you sound like you're from the North? Lots of planets have a North. But it's these moments where there's a juxtaposition or a slight offness of their responses versus the way actual normal Earth human people would respond to something that reminds you that this is an alien. I'm not a human being. I walk in eternity. What's that supposed to mean? It's kind of easy to understand why Rose becomes so immediately fascinated with him to the point where she's, you know, Googling him or using whatever generic search engine she's using. (laughs) Some weird stuff is happening in that shop that night, but the primary thing she's looking for answers about isn't so much the plastic uh, shop window dummies come to life. It's this strange person who showed up and bombed her workplace with a cheerful grin on his face. Yeah, exactly. And there is that charisma that Eccleston is able to just throw in that first opening shot where you get the hand and then you get the face and he says run and then you have this staccato pace of the music and of the way that they're interacting with each other that that's just from the very beginning enormously intense and I think that burst of adrenaline we're supposed to imagine that the character gets it but the viewer gets it Mm. it's a really visceral thing I think when the doctor works really well is when it's working not just on an intellectual capacity but also on a like a biological visceral not even in the realm of specific thought like I can go back and I can analyze it but at the time you're just you're reacting almost the way that you do as a child Mm. without all of that intellectualizing of of what's happening. You're just reacting. Hearing that word does something to you. Yeah, and I still get chills. Every time I see that scene, my hair stands up and I grin like a mad person. It's a moment that I will never, ever forget. Don't tell anyone about this because if you do, you'll get them killed. People had been telling me to watch Doctor Who for years. And I had actually watched Torchwood before I watched Doctor Who. Like, huh. And like so many people, they, they tried me on Blink. It's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey And I thought, oh, this is, stuff. This yeah, is a great episode of television in and of itself. I don't know that if I had watched something other than Rose after Blink... Like if, if I had gone to something else that was like a great piece of television, like like Blink in some ways, that, that didn't activate that visceral piece, that it would have dug into me and, and been something that ended up <laughs> eating so much of my time and my energy and, and, and I wouldn't be so passionate about it. I think, I really think this is this moment where it wasn't flat on the page or flat on the screen. Mm. And with the new series... I'm left traveling on my own because there's no one else. That Doctor Companion bond... With me. ...is so central. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I'm not the only one who feels this way because then in the Children in Need special, we have David Tennant the tense doctor's talking to Rose and she's like who the hell are you right and he says to your hand the first word I ever said to you I said one word Mm -hmm. 
It's one line. He whispers it. He doesn't yell it. It's, it's almost like a, a seduction scene or something. Like that, you watch that. I'm like, oh yeah, okay, maybe I do get what they're talking about. The people who ship them. It is that the hands coming together, and that one word is this bonding moment. He, he clearly thinks about it in retrospect. That's that's how he introduces himself. That's how he identifies himself. Yeah. Um, that's how he proves that he is who he is because. Because run. And I think for people who've watched the classic series, it is so much a part of the Doctor's character. I mean, every other Doctor has said, run. Run for it, Joe! I'm like hell. What? Now what? Keep running. What? Keep running. And when he says it to someone, he's almost always saying, like, run with me. We run. Yes. We run and run fast as we can, and we don't stop running. It's an invitation to join, to join him, and often to join him in an impulsive way. Yeah, and that is absolutely one of the things, I think, that ties into that feeling that I get. Because you're joining him, you're putting your hand in the hand of someone that you don't know, and you're taking that leap. It, it's similar to the whole, like, oh yeah, I'm getting on the TARDIS. Right then, I'll be off. The universe has opened up, and I'm just... Unless, uh... I don't know. You could come with me. Just, I don't know where I'm going. I don't have a safety net. This box isn't just a London op, you know. It goes anywhere in the universe. Free of charge. I'm going to take this adventure. Yeah, and she makes that decision at the end of this episode, Rose, to to join him on an impulse. And then the subsequent episode, The End of the World, she kind of goes... I just sort of hitched a lift with this man. Hold on, who is, who is this guy that I've chosen to run with? I didn't even think about it. Right. I didn't even know who he is. He's a complete stranger. This moment, though, where you have that alien figure and he takes the companion's hand in his. So you have them touching hands like human people and he says, run. And she makes the decision at that moment to go Mm. and to go with him because it doesn't really make sense that she would. Right. And it also she could have been running before he said anything. (laughs) I mean, he also could have just dragged her without even saying run. That's not totally impossible with the doctor to just drag them away but the more you watch Doctor Who the more you see I've been running that it's part of the I've ever run the characters and I've been running my whole life vocabulary and the 13th Doctor does say run nice I'm quiet now run but not in the same kind of way and I am not sure what to do with that you've been activated run but you can see the first doctor doing it. Oh, I think I can drag my aged limbs, in, limbs into some sort of resemblance of a run. Go on. When I say run, run. The second doctor does it quite a lot and quite dramatically. Run! But there's something about run mm. as a phrase, as a, this imperative. It's, here, we're going to do something to save your life. We're in danger. But it's also a release of a kind of kinetic joy. Hmm. And... I think that's one of the things that that really ripped my heart open about Doctor Who is that you have this otherness, this strangeness, this occasionally horror. There are some corners of the universe which have read the most terrible things. But you also have... Which act against everything that we believe in. Contained in this figure also this joy... Purple, green, brilliant, yellow, yes! What? These shoes! Exceeds... There's something about the doctor that is always very old and very innocent at the same time. I thought if you could hear me, I could hang on somehow. Matt Smith's a great example of that, where he's a very young man who sometimes acts like a very old one. Silly old doctor. 
you see the reverse sometimes. I think William Hartnell's a great example. Sometimes he's just very, very childish. Since you are so dissatisfied, my boy, you can get off the ship. No, he's... And the very next place we stop, I shall take you off myself. And that is The doctor who looks uh, and presents as the oldest man. Yeah, absolutely. And the 11th doctor in his first episode has this great moment where he's using run in a different way. Basically. Looking at that big alien eyeball and he says... Run. And the alien runs. And so that that little word can mean so many different things. But there it goes from him being a frenetic, kinetic bundle of twitches into something that scares the universe. And he's saying, run from me. So, you know, it's, it's slightly different. It's interesting that you mentioned that someone tried to start you off with Blink and then you came back and did it properly from Series 1, Episode 1. Yes. You know, a lot of the folks that I have on for the show, I'll, I'll ask them kind of what their history is with Doctor Who. And mm-hmm. they will tell me, oh, I tried to start with Rose, but it didn't work as a good jumping on point for me. Oh. I'm curious to know whether you think, I mean, it, it seems to have worked as an introduction, or if not if not an actual, you know, first introduction, then it seemed to really cement your interest in the show. How do you think it works as an introduction? I think it's a fantastic fantastic introduction. It's in some ways a a masterwork of how you introduce a character to a new audience when that's a character that some parts of the audience know really well and other people don't know at all. And you need to have the viewer get on board with both the companion and with the concept of the doctor really fast. I think it's very successful in that way. I'm really curious if the people who said that to you, what they'd been watching previously in some ways. That's that's a good point. I haven't asked that quite that question, mm-hmm. but the impression I've gotten is that the reason people bounce off Rose has to do with the aesthetics of it and the fact that it doesn't really look like TV that's being made now in the 2010s, and it doesn't even really look like TV that was made in America in the mid-aughts. There's a particular way that British TV of that era looks that's so distinctive and kind of, I think, to American viewers, looks a little bit... Why does he look so... Hokey and dated? Disco. Oi! Listen, in the year 5000, this was cutting edge. Pokey and dated are kind of things that you need to wrap your arms around and give a great big hug if you're going to be a Doctor Who fan. (laughs) Yeah. But it's not always going to be the best first impression for any given viewer. Sometimes it's something that they need to kind of work up to. Yeah, and I think that given my history of other things I had watched outside of Doctor Who, I have a lot of science fiction and fantasy television, film, especially books, but like that, that's the first things I remember ever seeing as a kid. So a bubble wrap alien does not phase me one bit. Permit of Mars when like they have combined in a tomb the new kingdom, the middle kingdom, and the old kingdom art really upsets me. I have brought back for these all the relics discovered by the professor on his recent expedition. That's just me being an art historian and a little, you know, up in my own head. Um, but in general, like a wobbly set doesn't matter to me. In fact, I dislike in some ways how perfect some of the later or more recent seasons of Doctor Who have looked. Everybody looks perfect. Their clothes are perfect. Their hair is perfect. The light is perfect. It's slick. It's slick, exactly. Like, I can't get the same kind of grip on it. And I'm going to say this even though um, it will not be popular, but I occasionally feel that the music veers that way a little bit. Like the, the Murray Gold music or Sagan Akinola's music? Or? The Murray Gold music is what I'm thinking of right now, is that it to me, I kind of push back on it <laughs> instead of just letting it happen because it feels so manipulative to me. Like, I can see what it's doing. I'm like, oh, yeah, I see you. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. You're trying to do a, like, arm stretch over the shoulder and hello. Like, I see you coming. (laughs) You're not fooling me. And I think a lot of people just, like, 
ease into that. And I'm like, oh no, you're trying too hard. <laughs> I think for me, it's more often more, oh, I see what you're doing and I'm here for it. <laughs> um, Sometimes that's true. And like some of that music is absolutely wonderful. There are times where I think it just needs to, be, it needs to turn the volume down a little bit. But I do think the music in this first episode, and I don't know who did the music. It's Murray Gold from the beginning, isn't it? So it is Murray Gold, but it's a slightly different Murray Gold from what we get later because in later episodes, he's working with a full orchestra, whereas here, it's like MIDI music, basically. Yeah. It's very synthesized, and um, I think he doesn't like this because when the soundtrack was released for series one and two, he went back and redid a lot of this stuff with new orchestrated arrangements of it. So it's not really surprising, I guess, that I like it <laughs> because I like the music better here because I, I like it when it's imperfect. I like it when it's odd. Um, the reason the Doctor Who theme has always resonated with me viscerally is because, again, it's an odd sound. It's not a, an orchestral sound. They've taken a sound and they've messed with it so that you have an expectation of how the music is going to work and how Western music works and how the sounds work and they're intentional messing with that mm. which to me works absolutely brilliantly in terms of the entire show where it's that moment where the slight oddity scratches down the back of your neck that I get the most pleasure like when that strangeness is it comes a little bit more to the surface. So it, it's almost like with um, cubism. I am so off on a sidetrack here. But the basic, like, if you ever tried to look at cubism and understand what was going on, there's always a clue where you see, like, a perfect three-dimensionally painted nail in something that then if you try to follow the space out from there, you can't. It breaks down. And it's that moment where what you think is a representation of reality breaks down that I get excited. Mm -hmm. Like, I get excited when things go off track. And so, like, that's why I like the doctor. And that's why I like the sound when it's rough. And I, <laughs> I like those moments of oddness and differentness. I think this is, in some ways, why I am a giant I, fan of the prisoner. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. And the prisoner grabbed me. Yeah. My life is my own. From day one, because that stuff is just catnip to me. And it's an oddness that has a level of play and joy and a kinetic quality that in some ways that grabbing of hand and run is like, for me, it's a metaphor for the whole shebang. <laughs> so much of what we see on television these days is very nihilistic. Mm. It, it doesn't have that open sense of possibility and joy. You don't necessarily have someone grinning in glee as they go to, you know, blow something up unless they're just like a psychopath right like the doctor isn't a psychopath like i feel like if you had someone grinning in glee in most television shows these days they would then go and kill like 700 children yeah he's he's grinning here because he knows he's doing the right thing he knows he's damn good at it and he's kind of showing off a bit to a bystander well and also because he's having fun yeah like he's having a freaking blast he gets high off the danger like that adrenaline rush is like a little high I think that's one of the things that really like brings you in is you see the way Rose's normal everyday life is it is kind of boring like she's bored by it mm. I think it's really set out for you in that first episode because narrative wise the reason that Rose's mother is so 
visible. Well, you've got to find some way of making money. Your job's kaput, and I'm not bailing you out. And her boyfriend is so visible in this initial one, is to provide a contrast. She's got kind of what we tend to think of as a dead-end life. Hmm. Yeah, She's kind of with this boy, and she's kind of not with this boy, and he kind of has this crappy job. He's lovely, but... You deserve a proper drink. We're going down the pub. You and me, my tree, how about it? Is there a match on? You know, he doesn't really have big aspirations. No, I'm just speaking about you, baby. There's a match on, ain't there? And he's not so, you know, throughout the season, super comfortable with her going off to college. <laughs> In the sky. Space college. (laughs) And Rose's mother looks so much like Rose, is not very much older than her, and hasn't really gone anywhere. Yeah. And Rose has got it together more than her mom. But, you know, she's not excited to go to work. She's not excited about this job. It's not intellectually engaging her in any fashion. You know, when we get her on the computer looking things up, she's way more excited. Mm. She's a whole different person. And and also the choice of having her be from where she's from in London, rather than when we're introduced to Clara. Okay. I'll be upstairs trying to figure out my computer. Anyway, the adverts are in, so hopefully we'll find someone. I'm here. It's let me Janini. You know, she may be a little unsettled in terms of what she wants to do next, but she's clearly more middle class or upper middle class. She's coded that way in how she dresses, how she talks, the fact that she has the ability to kind of just blow from job to job and, and the money doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is a very distinct portrait of the life that Rose or what kind of opportunities are open to her, what her, her life is likely to look like. Mm-hmm. It's very constructed around class. And I think that that's why you have Mickey and you have her mother and she has this kind of job. It's to give that kind of claustrophobic sense of her life. She doesn't have really other options. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason this guy is able to grab her hand and say run and that to crack the universe open is that you almost need somebody coming in from outside to crack that open and offer those opportunities to her. And for her to then see there's a whole universe out there, but also that she could be more than she thought she could be. And Eventually, we have Mickey and her mother also getting to see that, you know, they they end up in very different places, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to miss you. Than where they are. More than anyone. What do you mean? Doctor's going to take us home, isn't he? That's the point. So there are kind of classic responses to danger you hear about, which are like running away, which is flight, and then there's fight, and then sometimes you just freeze up. Mm -hmm. Um, if, If you were in a situation where you were confronted with a basement full of living mannequins... Uh, which one of those do you think you would uh, you would do? Is the doctor there? Let's say, which one do you think you would do until he showed up? And he, until he showed up, I would freeze. That's kind of what Rose is doing here. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a pretty rational response in some ways, especially since a lot of times when you run from things, they chase you. Yeah. I, I'm not necessarily saying run is the <laughs> best imperative. I'm not necessarily saying this is a good plan B, run. But yeah, I would definitely freeze. But a third person coming in, like a, well, I mean, if I'm counting like the body parts as one person, me as a second person, and then the doctor as a third person, um, that third person coming in, yeah, I would put my hand in his and run. I think I probably would too. Um, I hope so. (laughs) Because if I didn't, then I would probably die. Yeah. And I think there are other companions who run the other direction. They don't necessarily run with the doctor who are more suspicious of the doctor. And I don't know that I would ever do what Rose does and actually get on a TARDIS Mm. with a strange man to go out into the universe. Like that I don't see myself doing, but I would grab his hand and run. Is there anything else you wanted to say about the moment before you wrap up? Um, I think, I think what I really wanted to talk about was that, that moment of adrenaline 
in some ways that fight or flight response that you were talking about, like, do you, do you freeze? Do you run? Or do you fight? It's that triggering sensation that they've managed to make you feel through the music and the, the visual and so on so that you have that same bodily response there. Um, you, you made the point, it's run with me. Mm. You have his hand even before you have his face. Right. It's his hand reaching out for her hand and then you have his face and then you have run. So it's an invitation. When you get to the end of the episode and you see that her world's been cracked open and made bigger, you kind of get the feeling earlier on in the thing that, that people are more likely to grab her hand than to offer her the possibility of an open hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think, I think that is another piece of that that really worked on me, that it's a offering of the world, not a forcing her to take it. And that's not always true in Doctor Who with a companion. A lot of companions are, they're not given choices. They get dragged in one way or another. But just this, here, I'm offering this, and then she makes the choice to take it, and it opens up all of the choices that she's going to have going forward, which are way more than anything she's had before. And that is this week's episode of The Moment. Thank you very much to Kathleen Showalter, who you can find on Twitter at KShowalter. That's K-S-C-H-O-W-A-L-T-E-R. Kathleen is a frequent presence on panels at Doctor Who conventions, like the Gallifrey One convention held every February in Los Angeles. I also want to say thanks to all of you, not only for listening, but for your patience in some recent difficulties I've had, sticking to the usual release schedule for the moment. I've recently had some real-life stuff going on, which is overall pretty great, but has unfortunately made it somewhat difficult to edit the show in the time frame to which we've all become accustomed. For that reason, the moment will be released every two weeks for the remainder of the season, and so you should expect to see the next episode show up in your podcast app on the morning of Wednesday, October 2nd. In the meantime, you can always find out more about the show by visiting themomentpod.com, and you can get regular updates about the show on Twitter at themomentpod. You can support the show with legal currency at patreon.com slash themomentpod, and you can even rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever fine podcast ratings are collected. I'm Tom Dickinson, and I'll be back in a moment.